0: So the subject, uh, the theme I'd like to talk about tonight might require a little bit of a leap of imagination for you. And I'd like to talk about the wisdom of boredom. And I'd like to begin with reading you something I found in Time Magazine some years ago, which, uh, an article on Gus a polar bear who lived in New York Zoo. It says clearly people can relate. New York City's Central Park Zoo was deluged with calls from as far away as Brazil and Japan last week after word got around about Gus, the neurotic polar bear. Even Letterman cracked wise about the Ursine nutcase. Whose repetitive backstroke routine prompted the zoo to dole out $25,000 for an animal shrink. When he swims, it gets into a pattern of going back and forth, and he can do that for hours at a time, said a concerned zoo spokesperson about the 700 pound, eight year old polar bear. Eventually, they concluded that Gus was not sick. Gus was bored. So the doctors tried to distract Gus from his boredom, induced behavior, by livening up his days with toys, food, and extra human interaction. They said, hey, it works for us. LAUGHTER Now, apparently our culture is suffering an epidemic of boredom. In fact, boredom is being blamed for almost everything, from depression to stress to street violence, for addiction. Boredom is blamed for overspending, for car accidents, and even for suicide. And it's reported that countless people are living in an ongoing state of reaction to even the possibility of being bored. Now I'm sure today at least a few of you have had just a little taste of boredom. And probably no, it's, it is one of the most difficult states to be with. And I, I think in our culture, boredom is often seen as a taboo, as a kind of failure of our life. And it is a state that drives a lot of behavior because we tend to do a lot of running from boredom. And in truth, I think the discomfort of this feeling or the discomfort of this state can generate an enormous amount of restless and agitated behavior and choices. So I don't feel that we can really afford not to understand it and to really really understand what we are even talking about when we say we're bored. Now, perhaps there is a deeper, more significant and transforming shift that we can make in ourselves, and I do admit this is a bit of a stretch, from seeing boredom as a problem to be solved, to boredom as potentially a very fertile ground of wisdom. And there may indeed be something quite fundamentally important about us about who we are, that maybe only boredom can teach us. First of all, it's useful to acknowledge that even the word boredom didn't enter into the English language until well into the 18th century. So it's a relatively new word um, and even a relatively perhaps new experience You know, if you read some of the great religious texts from the Buddhist suttas, you know, to the Bible, to the Quran, you know, there's a recognition of a lot of timeless human emotions, you know, greed and anger and jealousy and fear, been around for a long, long time. But you won't find any mention of the word boredom. And boredom was something that evolved out of excess, and particularly an excess of time. I mean, prior to the late 18th century, people by necessity were so immersed in the daily tasks of survival, the boredom clearly was not an issue. And of course, this is true of much of our world today. If from the moment that we woke up in the morning to the moment we went to sleep at night we were facing the urgent questions of how to feed and clothe and house and protect ourselves and those that we love, boredom's hardly going to be something that occupies our attention. So, sometime late in the 18th century, there began to emerge, certainly in Western culture, a group of people who were wealthy enough and had enough time that they could relax a little bit, you know, out of survival mode. And in something of a kind of supercilious way, sort of, you know, kind of flap their hands, you know, and say, it's so boring, darling. You know, life is so boring. And it was, you know, to be able to say that was considered to be something of a life success story. You know, to be able to be bored was a luxury. Hmm? Now, I think most people today would hardly consider boredom to be a mark of success or a blessing. In fact, I think culture is often regarded as a kind of a curse, as something to fear, something to run from, something to eradicate. And in truth, actually, it's pretty strange in our world that anyone could, in this twentieth, 21st century culture, that anybody could possibly be bored. When we're surrounded on a daily basis by thousands of diversions and distractions at the push of a button or the click of a mouse. You know, we have diversions and distractions hammering at our sense doors throughout our days and throughout our lives, shouting at us, you know, why not be entertained? You know, be occupied with me. Pay attention to me. And yet we discover, I think most of us discover, unlike Gus's story, It really doesn't seem to work. It's almost as if we're kind of wired to crave novelty, you know, to crave the new experience, the new sensation, the new impression, the new event we've never met before. And so what we see, you know, is this kind of movement into the extremes, you know, everything becomes more extreme you know, from our food, from our obsessions, from our roller coasters and movies, in order to actually stir something in our hearts, in order to actually stir something in our minds. Now, I think sometimes in our resistance to and fear of boredom, we can kind of find ourselves living, and I think we get a taste of this in our practice, Living in a, a sort of ongoing state of expectation, of anticipation, almost of demanding that life should be offering us a non stop series of events and experiences that excite us and stimulate us. And if life doesn't offer something to excite us, it should at least give us something to do. At least need something to do, something to fix or a project to work on. And sometimes it seems that the absence of something to do or to fix is, has the effect of almost depriving us of a sense of meaning. So I think it's truly no wonder at all that we actually can find it so hard just to sit, just to walk, just to breathe, just to listen. And, you know, we see that, you know, we see when that it's really hard to do that, to find that simplicity of just being we we get even creative with our breathing and our walking. You know, people report. You know, it's so boring. You know, so I tried breathing in one nostril and then out the other. You know, and then breathing in that nostril and out the other. You know, and in my walking, and I was just like to walk like an elephant or walk like a dog or walk <laughs> like a bear. You know. it's, It's like on some deep level, it can feel so unacceptable for us just to really move into a place of greater stillness and listening and to really wonder what it means just to be here. It's almost as if boredom is a kind of this empty space or this black hole in which we fear we may disappear and be no one and then be not worth anything. Now, Eric from and said that human beings are the only animals who can be bored, who can feel so disconnected, that can feel evicted from paradise. I believe that we are actually kind of afraid of boredom. Because it it evokes a sense of loss, of there being something missing. And so it can make us, the prospect of that can make us so agitated. And I, I think we experience that quite directly on a retreat. You know, if we can't find some new experience or event outwardly, very you know, there's not much really here. But we can get really creative, can't we, with the notice board, with the tea boxes. And if you've ever found yourself out there in the hallway reading somebody else's work period instructions, (laughs) which I know people do, (laughs) that it's really telling us something about the state of our mind. Hmm? And if we can't do that, then we'll fill up this empty space, or this seemingly empty space, with noise, with fantasy. Fantasy is a great option to boredom. Daydreams, imagining, planning. In fact, noise and busyness are our most frequent response to even the possibility of boredom. The simple truth is that if we endlessly endeavor to avoid boredom by drowning ourselves in distractions, we will develop the habit of distractedness. And if we can find in ourselves the willingness to pause and to just stop a little bit and to truly heed and to listen to this phenomena of boredom and what it has to teach us, then we will develop the habit of wonder and attentiveness. Now, although the word boredom is relatively new in our vocabulary, I think there is another much more ancient word which which has something to do with boredom. And here I'm going to already uh, apologize to any Greek classical scholars here. Because I have asked about 20 people how to pronounce this word, and 20 people have told me something different. Acadia. 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 I'm going to pronounce it like that. If it's completely wrong, just go with it. Acadia. In the early desert, fathers and mothers, monks and nuns, who would leave the busyness of their world and retreat to the Deserts to contemplate and meditate, to really dedicate their hearts to a very deep spiritual path of awe and awakening. They identified something called the demons of noontide. The demon of noontide. And they call it, I think it's Akadia. It's a word that was used to describe a sense of malaise, an inner discontent that was encountered, and it was spoken about as as a sort of deep inner affliction of a loss of meaning, a kind of spiritual indifference, a loss of spiritual appetite. Akkadia sometimes described a sense of disconnection from a quality of wonder and perhaps this affliction, my sense is this affliction, this kind of spiritual exhaustion, this deeper affliction is as common today as it really was for those early desert fathers and mothers. Though this word achadia comes from the Greek and it, it's translated sometimes as a lack of care. And I think it has much to do with our experience of boredom. And I think surely what we see in our practice, or one of the very first steps in our practice, is actually to care for what is uncared for. To care for this sense of disconnection, a loss of wonder, that we might describe superficially as boredom. Boredom is certainly a mental discontent a mental discomfort. It's, it's a kind of dis-ease of our hearts that is not being attended to. And our practice is to attend to what is not attended to. We have a... <coughs> what is that? It's a great free frog. Thank you. I thought it was somebody snoring <laughs> really bored, eh? We just got right in there with the border piece I think it 's really important to understand that we are not only bored with the world, we are really bored with our own mind. You find that? <laughs> Initially, what looks so incredibly interesting, this mind, it gets uninteresting really fast. And I think actually there's a kind of maturity in that sometimes. You know, part when we see the endless loops is not to say the mind is too bereft of creativity, but there are parts of it that we are just so bored with our own mind. I think this this sense of discontent has something to do with not being at ease and at home within the fullness of our own being and the aliveness of that, and our practice is really learning to find that aliveness, to be truly a friend to ourselves, to look underneath some of the numbness and the dullness that we describe as boredom that we may encounter, and to really look within ourselves. Is there a loss of spiritual appetite? Is there a kind of spiritual indifference that lives within us? That is a kind of spiritual urgency that has become muted or even forgotten. And I think part of that questioning is also to see that sometimes that loss of real spiritual appetite has something to do with the loss of faith in ourselves. It has something to do with a loss of faith in our own capacity to awaken our own capacity to really understand what it means to be free. To really have the faith in that is something that is deeply, deeply precious. Now, I think that there is a cure for boredom, and it is not more toys or distractedness. It's not more noise or busyness. I think the cure for boredom really begins with mindfulness, and it it continues with insight. Perhaps the first step in that that's important is to acknowledge that boredom is a state of mind. It is not a description of life, and it is a very painful state of mind that can lead to a great deal of impulsive behavior. Now, we think that boredom is saying something often about our life or the kind of experience we are having or the kind of experience we are not having. But I think, in truth, boredom is saying something much more about our loss of connectedness and and sensitivity and wonder. At the third foundation of mindfulness is to contemplate the mind as the mind, to contemplate mental states as mental states. If you just think about the countless mental states you have had just today, hmm, agitation, calmness, dullness, anxiety, contractedness, spaciousness, you've probably had a hundred mental states today. So why should we ever believe or imagine that boredom is the one mental state we should never have? What is it about boredom, this mental state, that is so unacceptable to us? I think this mental state of boredom carries with it certain messages and belief systems. When we feel bored, we actually feel that everything is a waste of time. In our own experience, we see that when we are more present and awake, we feel that nothing is a waste of time. When we're locked in that mental state of boredom, we have this perception of sameness. Everything feels very muted, very dull, very stuck. When we feel more alert and more awake we see that actually nothing remains the same, even for a single moment. Boredom tells us that this moment that we're in is somehow undeserving of our attention. Mindfulness teaches us that every moment is worthy of equal respect. In truth, boredom is often a surrender of sensitivity. It is a surrender of connectedness. When we're bored, it seems to tell us that this moment is uninteresting, dull, that nothing is happening. We see that when we're more mindful, more awake, it brings with it elements of interest, of curiosity. Boredom has this perception of nothing happening, but it is just a mistaken perception. Because in truth, of course, life is happening inviting us to be present, inviting us to participate. There's a tendency to believe that boredom is caused by outside events and that to change those events we would be less bored. Uh, last year, I think it was last year, Rob and I were teaching in Holland and, and there's, 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 in Holland they have a, a Buddhist television station and and they came to make a documentary about an insight meditation retreat, you know, so they were filming for hours. And, you know, you could see them <laughs> their eyes were sort of glazing over, you know. I mean it's not really that interesting to sit what, film people just sitting there, you know. And when Rob got up to demo, you know, show what walking meditation looked like, they got all excited, you know, because like something was finally happening, you know. And, and they said to us, it's not very sexy what you do, is it? <laughs> we said, actually, no, it's really not very sexy what we do. You know. But when boredom is trying to tell us that our li- there's something wrong with our life, I think what awareness and understanding is really teaching us is that the sources of joy and sorrow are really in our own hearts. And this path that we're on is really not about the pursuit of some new, exciting, exhilarating, you know, moment of most fantastic meditation experience of all time. You know, this path is not really about pursuing our own Bodhi tree experience. But it's about finding the wisdom and the compassion in its beginning, in its middle, and its end really to open to life just as it is. And in truth, you know, there's something, and I really want to highlight this, is in truth, in cultivating this path of mindfulness, of awakening, of awareness, what we are really doing is we are awakening our capacity to be delighted. We're awakening our capacity to be touched, our capacity for wonder. And in that, it really doesn't matter what is there right in front of us. That capacity to be delighted finds its fulfillment in a single breath, in a leaf on a tree, on an ant walking on the path. It is that capacity to be delighted which is actually in a very real way, reclaiming our heart. Isaac Newton, he once wrote, he says, I don't know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a child playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then, finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary whilst the great ocean of truth lay undiscovered before me. Now, if we can acknowledge boredom as a state of mind and just learn to begin to relax into it a little, not too much, please, because then you fall asleep. But to relax into it just a little, and to be interested in boredom. About interested in what it can teach us, and to know it well. You know, there's a Zen Zen teacher once said, if you're bored with something you're doing, do it for another five minutes. If you're still bored, do it for another ten minutes. If you're still bored, do it for an hour. If you're still bored... Do it until your heart awakens. There's a very simple lesson that we will learn and do learn in our practice is that the more mindful we are, the less bored we are. The less mindful we are, the more bored we are. Now, one of the understandings that arises, I think, out of our willingness to be with boredom is that it teaches teaches us something about our reliance and at times our dependency upon sensations and events and external stimulation in order for us to feel awake and alive and connected. We can even believe that our hearts can only be stirred, that our hearts can only be touched if they are fed. That, or, or through that medium of sensory input. Our wakefulness and our aliveness, we can believe, is dependent and contingent upon conditions. And without that sense of excitement, without that ongoing sensory stimulation, we feel depleted or we feel dull or disconnected. And that's actually what we describe as boredom. Now, my understanding, this is a terrible belief system and it's a terrible dependency because we can then become kind of beggars at our sense doors, craving and pursuing the ever more novel experience and sensation and emotion and sound, actually what we're craving and pursuing is that sense of aliveness. What we're really craving and pursuing is that sense of wakefulness and wonder that we have, I think, in that belief system, externalized. That craving and pursuit of the endlessly new experience, I think, is of great detriment not only to our own hearts, but it's of great detriment to our planet. And I think we we really get a sense of that here, that the more disconnected we are is the degree to which we find ourselves prowling the world. You know, what is it that I can almost feed upon or find or absorb that is somehow maybe going to reawaken this sense of wonder. And to me, one of the greatest clingings and the greatest cravings that can govern our hearts is the addiction to intensity, to the pleasant and even to the unpleasant, because that is what we believe makes us feel alive. I remember once sitting on a train in England, and and this young woman opposite me was. Uh, you know, had pretty much every visible part of her body pierced with one thing or another. And, you know, and I asked her after a while, I said, doesn't it hurt? And she says, yeah, but it makes me feel so alive. Now, I think the difficulty and the suffering is obvious. I mean, intensity is not hard to find in our life. But what impact does that pursuit or that craving for intensity, what impact does it have upon our hearts, our minds, our lives? We may actually even see or sense that this sensory overload has something to do with us possibly even reaching a point where we find it increasingly difficult to respond with much depth to anything at all. You know, it's like the T-shirt, being there, done that. Mm-hmm. I always think that's the saddest T-shirt I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> now, the difficulty that, that I think many people can experience on the first days of a retreat has something to do with a kind of withdrawal symptom. You know, it's a kind of withdrawal symptom from this endless sensory input and, and it's a withdrawal symptom that is kind of withdrawing from that craving for intensity that's actually not being satisfied here. Now, we know that we want to run from the painfulness of dullness or the painfulness of agitation or boredom. But if we stay, stay and, and, and can be patient, we may begin to see that that painfulness is actually the painfulness of beginning to wake up of beginning to discover a simpler sense of ease, beginning to rediscover our capacity for sensitivity and for peace within the greatest simplicity. It's a way of reclaiming our capacity to be delighted and our capacity for wonder. If we truly believe that our aliveness and our wakefulness is ever more dependent upon sensory impression and experience, then we have made this world of, that is unreliable, unpredictable, changing conditions. We have made this world the gatekeeper of the happiness and freedom of our own hearts and minds. And that is when we can become, become like hungry ghosts in this world, you know, prowling with never, ever feeling there's ever enough. Always a sense of lack. We don't actually need to be a hostage to that sense of dependency or belief system. And our path is, is really to liberate ourselves from that dependency and belief system And to really know what the Buddha spoke about when he spoke about learning what it really means to abide independent, not governed by anything. Kabir has this wonderful poem. He says, I said to this wanting creature inside me, What is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on the bank or resting? There is no river and no boat and no boatman. There is no tow rope either and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. Be strong. He said, and there is no body and no mind. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty. In that great absence you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body, and there you will have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. I think another aspect of boredom and understanding what boredom offers us is a whole world of understanding of really beginning to notice of when boredom arises. What is the ground from which boredom arises? For you notice, you're rarely bored when we are offered an outpouring or inpouring of pleasant sensations or events or sights or thoughts. Then we're really energized, aren't we? We're really awake. We're really connected. If we brought in here hour after hour, and you know, if we had cabarets and whirling dervishes, you know, and concerts. So it would give us something to engage with, you know. Although even then our wakefulness really might last a very short time. You know, it's so interesting, you know, in Bhutan and Ladakh, which has in more recent years opened up its, their doors to Western tourists who really want to come there, you know, to engage in some of the kind of ancient cultural rituals and spiritual traditions. The monasteries have even received instructions to shorten the length of some of the sacred dances in response to Westerners' low tolerance for boredom. Now, we're rarely bored if in our mind there's a whole lot of, you know, very enticing, pleasant fantasies and wonderful daydreams, you know, uplifting emotions or, you know, some pretty neat meditation experience, you know, we're not bored. It's almost as if the pleasant sensation gets associated with that wakefulness. And it gives us a direction. It gives us something to do, someone to be. We're also very rarely bored in the midst of the deeply unpleasant or painful. I mean, have you ever sat in a dentist chair getting a root canal and said, this is really boring, and anyway, or well, you know, it, or if there's a strong emotion of anger or rage or jealousy, in truth, you know, however painful they may be, we're certainly not bored. We're not bored when our back is in agony, when we meet a diff- difficult illness, the painfulness of an obsessive thought. We're certainly not bored in those moments when our worlds seem to crumble and fall apart when we face loss again these can be some of the most deeply wakeful moments in our life and again they can give us something to do something to care for something to plan someone to be so where what is the ground in which boredom most arises in the face of experience and events and sensations and impressions that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It really is the second foundation of mindfulness, to contemplate feeling as feeling, the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral. That contemplation is really the birthplace of equanimity and balance, the equanimity that is born of being willing to be equally near the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral. Now, the neutral, this is so interesting. There's a lot that is kind of neither pleasant nor unpleasant in our day. Neutral thoughts, sounds, sensations, events. You know, and I actually think that this is one of the most enlightened places to practice Because to deeply understand our relationship to the neutral often is a doorway to discovering a tremendous sense of ease and an understanding that has the power to release us from the extremes of craving and aversion that arises often, most often, in relationship to the pleasant and the unpleasant. Now, in the neutral, we can discover a very profound sense of ease and space and wakefulness. Now, we talk, we're not really very fond often of the neutral. It's the <laughs> truth. We don't like it much. You know, it's often the place where we flounder and get numb and space out and fall, you know, just fall out of wakefulness. We say, oh, nothing's happening. Or more often in the face of the neutral, we, we launch ourselves into craving and agitation because it's so uncomfortable, we say something's wrong here, something's missing, there's nothing to do, there's no one to be, and we can feel so much anxiety and even panic in the face of that. I think often the neutral can feel like a little bit like a deprivation, almost like a small death of self. And what is revealed is how much of our sense of who we are, our sense of self is actually an event that arises dependent upon other events. A pleasant event, pleasant self. In an unpleasant event, there's a sense of self that arises in relationship to that. sense of self arises in relationship to the events of emotions, of thought, of body experience. Events that we react to often with wanting and not wanting, with craving or aversion. Events upon which are the foundations upon which we build a sense of who we are through our reactions and through our doing. Now the neutral can be kind of a scary or confusing place to be because we don't know what to do with it in It doesn't seem to appear to offer any of this, except again through another reaction when we want it to go away. Now there's something, I think, about a tremendous insight in learning to practice in the neutral zone. Clearly we need to learn to practice with the pleasant. We need to learn to practice with the unpleasant. But there's a tremendous insight in learning to practice in the neutral zone, what I call no man's land or no woman's land, You because there's no one to be there. If we can just see past the aversion or the resistance that arises and be interested so the neutral doesn't descend into dullness or boredom. And quite frankly, there's a lot of moments in our practice and in our life where there's not much happening. It's okay. Why does something have to be happening? We can see if we take away the aversion and the craving for the neutral, it has a remarkable closeness a very deep sense of calm and eventlessness. An eventlessness. And sometimes I think, on its most deep level, mindfulness actually has this quality of eventlessness. Because nothing is isolated with reactivity. That's not boredom. And it can be a very profound wakefulness, but it's also not clinging to events. So it's not building a sense of self upon various, uh, uh, upon this impressions that are isolated, in this flow of impressions that are part of every moment. Now if you look around you right now, you will actually see a lot around you that is neither particularly pleasant, neither particularly unpleasant. You know, I don't really get excited about the clock or, you know, the schedule, sitting here. I mean, it's such a, just is what it is. Now, if you, there's a couple of interesting things that you can see by focusing on the neutral, really noticing it. First of all, you see, it's not much of an event, so usually we miss it because we're so busy looking for an event to build our sense of who we are upon. So as you stay close to the neutral, see what happens in the mind, in the consciousness. Now one of the things that can happen is such a tremendous sense of ease, calmness, the calmness of eventlessness. The other thing that can happen is we really see that when we pay attention to something that looks at first quite neutral, that the very nature of our interest awakens that which has previously been kind of excluded from our attention because it's not it's not something that we can get something from but our attention actually awakens the world pay attention to anything that's neutral and you really see the way in which your interest and your attention actually awakens that world of that moment now, this is a tremendous gift and skill and art that we're really learning to cultivate in our practice. Where there is interest, there is wise attention. Where there is wise attention, there is the awakening of the moment. Where there is interest and wise attention, there is the awakening of our own capacity to be delighted, to be touched, to really have that sense of wonder, of sensitivity, of receptivity that is not linked to what this moment what I can get from this moment, but actually is just linked simply at that innate capacity for wakefulness and awareness. Now the secret of this whole path, the secret of this whole path of liberating is really actually learning to celebrate the loveliness of the ordinary. The loveliness of the ordinary. That is really the kind of, kind of the essence of really the the heart that is truly sensitive, truly connected. Albert Einstein said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all science. One to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer pause to wonder and to stand wrapped in awe, is already as good as dead. Their eyes are closed. So this is something actually to truly experiment with, to explore in the practice here, to really take those moments to pause, to really see in how we build our sense of who we are upon the changing events of the world, to really sense the freedom of not being a hostage to those changing events. Learning to pause and just see, just connect outwardly and inwardly learning through that interest and attentiveness to awaken that sense of wonder and awe and sensitivity and receptivity, awakening our capacity to be delighted and within that also the greatest equanimity, the willingness to be equally near all things. Let us take a moment quietly together. <clears throat>